Welcome to the Personal Equity Podcast, where we discuss investing in yourself and building personal equity. We take a deep dive with our guests into their stories, careers, and lives from both a personal and financial perspective. I'm your host, Mike Troxel. Today, we'll be speaking with Chris Murphy, who is a vice president at State Street. In our conversation, we covered investing in Chris's career journey. The links and information in this episode can be found at personalequitypodcast.com. Hi, Chris. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Happy to be here, man. It seems like we've been talking about this day for a while. You have been an accountability partner for me, so I, I, <laughs> I do appreciate that. I'd love to start with the present. Can you give any listeners an idea of sort of where you are now and what you're up to? Yeah, sure. So uh, I live in San Francisco with my wife and daughter. Have been, like everybody else, sheltered in place and social distancing now for almost four months. It's crazy. I actually just gave myself my third haircut this afternoon. So I'm becoming pretty good at it and actually got positive feedback from most people. So I feel bad. My bar, I walked by her place the other day and she had a sign up that said, please do not cut your own hair. <laughs> I took a picture of it and sent it to her. I said, sorry, I broke the rules three times. That's incredible. So are you really giving yourself the haircut or is your wife doing a quality check? No, I don't trust her with the Clippers at all. So it's all me. Actually, the first time I did it, I looked like the character Tommy Shelby from Peaky Blinders, you know, like that <laughs> buzz cut with the bowl on the top. So the first time was a bit of a trial by error. I'm figuring it out slowly but surely. So That's a great place to start. So are you doing like a true Zoom style haircut where you're really only focusing on the front and the sides and ignoring the back? Or are you trying to do the full Monty there? No, I'm doing the whole thing. The back is tough, right? I feel like I'm playing pin the tail on the donkey with the backside because you obviously have no clue what's going on. And I'm not very sophisticated when it comes to the setup either. So just in my backyard, giving it a go. But, you know, three times is it good. So things are good here though. All things considered, the Murphy family's doing well and we're hanging in there just like everybody else is. That's great to hear. So you're in San Francisco. And so give us an idea of what you do and what keeps you busy during the day as far as work goes? Sure. So I've been with State Street Global Advisors. We're a, uh, an asset management firm based in Boston now for almost 10 years. As you know, for guys our age, that's pretty rare feat to be with one firm for almost your entire career so far. So I report to a group out of Boston that works in our spider exchange traded fund business. So I support financial advisors, independent financial advisors here in Northern California within that group. So in my day-to-day, is working hand-in-hand with financial advisors to talk about the ETF industry, the wealth management industry, and you know, really focused on education around how advisors should be thinking about using ETFs in their portfolios, all things considered, the risk considered, the advantages considered, because it is such a fast and growing space that there's a lot of education needed. So I spent a lot of my time on education and speaking through those issues that advisors might have when they're introducing ETFs into the portfolios for their first time. As you mentioned, State Tree is based out of Boston. So did you start with them in Boston or did you start with them out in California? Yeah. So uh, I spent about three and a half years on the call it internal sales desk in Boston. Actually, the first couple of years were in Quincy, Mass. And I know you have some experience living in the Boston area. It's not the most glamorous place on earth. So you kind of cut your teeth down in Quincy you get promoted to the Boston desk, which feels like you know, you're moving from the slums into the brownstones in the back bay. And that's when you feel more of a sense of responsibility and opportunity. That's important in terms of progressing through your career, looking back on the progression and knowing like what it took to get to where you are. You know, State Street did a good job of making sure that you kind of knew where you were and you knew what you could aspire and work to. So you know, I spent a few years on that Boston desk and then was given the opportunity to move out to San Francisco in November of 2013. So you've been in the ETF business for almost a decade. So can you give us an idea of how that industry has changed over that time frame? I mean, ETFs have not been around for that long, as far as I know. I mean, mutual funds really used to own the space. So how has it changed over the last 10 years? Yeah, it's changed dramatically. 
and not just from the asset growth, but from the number of products, the types of products and strategies that are inside of ETFs now, and the diversity of users, I think is really stark. So once was created as an institutional product for uh, asset managers to buy and sell basket of the S&P 500 intraday, now lends itself to financial advisors to build wholly diversified portfolios, lends itself to hedge funds, to certain sectors of the market. So it really lends itself to all different types of investors. And where it's come, I mean, you think about the ETF industry now, and I think one of the misconceptions is that ETFs are taking over the world and taking over the investment market from you know, the, the amount of people that use them and the amount of growth they've had. Yes, they've had tremendous growth. I think it was about 30% year-over-year growth from the end of 18 to the end of 19, and currently sitting at about $5 trillion in assets. But I think what people don't fully, I think, appreciate is, is that it's still not that big. So I was looking at some numbers and the size of the market, the US listed US equity ETF market is 3.6 trillion in assets. So that's just US equity ETFs, 3.6 trillion. Microsoft and Apple's market cap alone is 3 trillion. So when people think that the equity markets are being dominated and taken over by ETFs, two stocks almost make up the entire US equity ETF market. So I think people need to maybe take a step back. Yeah, sure, they're growing at a very rapid and eye-opening pace. But in the big scheme of things, they're still a pretty small portion of the overall equity markets from an asset perspective. And not to put you on the spot, do you know how they compare to the mutual fund market? Yeah. So ETFs, it's in the name exchange traded, are investment vehicles that trade just like a stock. So you can go onto your brokerage account or through your financial advisor and buy and sell an ETF when the stock market's open from 9.30 Eastern to 4 o'clock. So because of that feature, whereas a mutual fund, it just strikes an end-of-day NAV, ETFs are more of a tactical tool, meaning that you you can buy and sell intraday a basket of energy stocks, for example, or biotechnology stocks and react to news intraday more quickly and more readily than obviously you can with a mutual fund. So that's the biggest and I think most important distinction is that an ETF is traded intraday, whereas a mutual fund is end-of-day pricing. The other big difference is transparency. A lot of actively managed mutual funds, which is the bulk of the assets in the mutual fund land, are actively managed and don't have intraday transparency like an ETF does. So you know exactly what you own in an ETF on every day whereas mutual funds don't report their holdings until end of quarter most of the time. So the transparency in terms of their holdings is a really unique feature and it can be a very important feature for a lot of investors that want to know what they own on a daily basis. And I think the third and most important difference, and it's more mechanically, is the tax efficiency of the ETF wrapper and the creation redemption mechanism that lends itself to that tax efficiency, meaning when shares of an ETF are either created or redeemed from the marketplace, an authorized participant who is instructed to delete or create shares of that ETF does so in kind. So when there's an imbalance of supply and demand on the trading market, the market maker will either delete shares or introduce more shares to the market. And that's an in-kind transaction. So they'll Instead of coming to State Street and saying, hey, we need to redeem or sell a million shares of this particular ETF, we'll just give them the underlying shares that make up that index, and then they'll delete the share. So there's no actual capital gain or loss being triggered to the fund, which at the end of the day, you know, if there were a gain triggered, would be passed along to the holders of those funds. And, and that's what makes the ETF tax efficient is that you don't have that capital gain being democratized across the shareholders of that fund because there isn't a capital gain being triggered most of the time. Yep, that's definitely one of the drawbacks when it comes to mutual funds. You know, taxpayers do not like those year-end distributions and year-end tax surprises. I'd love to talk a little bit about education. You mentioned education's a big component of your job. Did you have any idea about that going into it? Do you like it? And even uh, digging deeper, you guys have so many product offerings. So how do you 
as an educator, how do you stay educated on your internal offerings? Yeah, the latter part of that question is something I try to always make sure that I'm sharp on is is our product lineup. Yeah, as you mentioned, we have over 150 ETFs that span just about every asset class, right? From emerging market, small cap stocks to high yield municipal bonds. So we need to be pretty well versed across, and then of course, gold, right? So we need to be well versed across on a very macro level in a very wide ranging view of asset classes. So that's something I always try to keep front and center is continuing to educate myself on our lineup and where those asset classes fit in today's market environment. You know, I... <laughs> I didn't think that this job would have as much of an educational component as it does. I thought it would be more of, hey, let's call up this financial advisor and share this sector idea that we have, or let's call up this team and say, hey, I think it's time for you guys to, to look at gold. I thought it was going to be much more tactical and much more idea oriented rather than truly being an educator on the ETF structure and topics that have nothing to do with the capital markets. So I did not expect, but I appreciate that because now, that's the part of the job where I get a lot of value from. And when I think about how I'm able to help people, it's through that education context that I truly find rewarding and value. So it's kind of a surprise, but it's probably the most rewarding part of my job is being able to educate someone on, on how the ETF works, why we believe it's a great structure and great for their clients, and then for them to you know, adopt that in their own practice and then speak to their clients about why they're going to be using more ETFs in their portfolios. That's the ultimate satisfaction for me. They can then articulate that to their client and be comfortable with it. So, you know, over these 10 years, that's, that's certainly been a rewarding feature of this job outside of sharing good ideas, of course, and making people money. It is interesting to think of the scope of touch or impact you've had over the last 10 years. I know I use some of, some of your products and virtually every portfolio. You've been a great resource for me and my clients. And I wonder across all of the firms that you've touched over the last 10 years and all of the clients of those firms, I mean, I would guess you've played some hand in thousands and thousands of client portfolios. Yeah. you know, And that's something where I think our industry maybe fell short. Although I think we've been really good at educating advisors and the public on the benefits of ETFs, I don't think that was as well messaged as it should have been in the early years. We've almost reacted to the growth of ETFs and been on our back foot in a way in terms of you know, what, that we should be educating more. We had a service on our website. It was called SpiderU. And it was good. It served the purpose, but it should have been front and center rather than buried in our website. So I think we should have done a better job as an industry and you know, certainly as a firm in terms of education. But yes, I think the impact in terms of, I hope, in terms of what I've done, I'm sure has been felt not only with the advisors that I work with, but their clients. Because listen, with the growth of the ETF industry, a lot of our job, you know, in terms of getting the message out about why ETFs are a good investment vehicle is being done by the individual investor. A lot of that story is being told in the newspapers and on the media of why ETFs work and why they're a good investment vehicle without us having to beat the drum on it. So financial advisors are probably getting a lot of those questions from their clients. Like, why aren't we using more ETFs or are ETFs a part of my portfolio? So for us to be a resource to those conversations has been really important. And I think it's been pretty impactful. Yeah. Talking about the growth of the ETF business, I'm curious how many people knew even what an ETF was seven, 10 years ago versus today. It's a lot more common knowledge. I would like to ask you one question and Maybe this would be help if any investors are listening. Given the last several months, I mean, we're recording this at the end of June. There's been a lot of sort of ups and downs. Sometimes it's difficult for people to separate in their mind the stock market versus the economy, where the economy could be going one direction up or down, and the market could obviously be going in, in its own direction. Do you have any sort of thoughts or comments on that, you know, how to explain that? Yeah, I think you just look at what the sector weightings are in the S&P 500 and go side by each with what parts of the economy are being affected right now. The S&P 500 is almost 30% in technology and tech-like names, where majority of the pain in the real economy isn't being felt by technology companies. They're somewhat insulated from this. So 
you know, I think you just look at the market, as you put it, which is the S&P 500, and look at how much exposure the market has to areas of the economy that are in a really tough spot right now. And there's a pretty big mismatch. We saw what happened to oil back in April. Energy is less than 5% of the S&P 500 right now. It was 13% or so back in 08. Consumer staples are a smaller percentage than they've been. So, you know, travel and leisure is a very small percentage of the SP 500. So when you think about the market versus the economy, I think that's an important distinction to look at. And going back to the ETF model briefly, we can move on to some other items. Sometimes it's confusing in investing circles on who gets paid or how they get paid. I know State Street was on the forefront of some of the no transaction fee type vehicles. And now a lot of big custodians have moved in that direction, sort of eliminating transaction fees for stocks and ETFs altogether. How do these people make money if there's no fees? Yeah, well, I still have a job, so we're still making money somehow. But it's certainly harder, right? As you reduce your expenses that investors pay to access your funds, it's your margins get tighter. And you know, technology has certainly helped in terms of the way baskets of ETFs are traded and the portfolio management side of it has definitely been enhanced and made more efficient. But you got to remember too that when thinking about expense ratios and how ETFs work, the purpose of the ETF at its core is to give you exposure to that index, that set index that you're tracking, less the expense ratio, which is tracking error. So tracking error in an ideal world should be whatever the expense ratio is of the fund. And that's why, you know, it's something like, ETF only being three basis points expense ratio, you should only have a, a tracking error of three basis points, but that's not always the case. And so have to buy and sell the ETF and there's other transaction costs. But where ETF providers still make their money is through being able to lend out those underlying stocks. For example, in 08, our select sector financial ETF, XLF, was actually positive, was actually a revenue driver for the firm because we were able to lend out those underlying shares of the financial services sector to folks that wanted to go short the financial services sector. So we were able to make a premium on those securities lending. And ETFs have other ways of making money outside the expense ratio and supporting the fund and tracking error outside of the expense ratio. So I think that's something to... It's not well publicized, but it's something to consider when looking at the total cost of an ETF is... Are they doing securities lending? Are they generating revenue off of that? How much of that is being passed along to the shareholders, et cetera? That's something to consider. But yeah, bottom line is, is margins are coming in. And it's not just our industry, it's all industries. And we need to be creative in the way that we're not only providing a good product for the individual investors, but also remain profitable. That's really interesting about XLF, how it was a revenue driver in 2008, despite financials getting decimated. Yeah, I think it speaks to the ecosystem of the ETF, right? It's not just for buy and hold investors. I think when people see flows into quote unquote passive, right? So when you look at ETFs and just synonymously categorize them as passive vehicles, sure, they track a passive index, but they're not being used passively, right? Who's buying and holding the select sector financials ETF? Maybe some people are, but the majority of the people that are buying and selling that ETF are doing so because they want to express a view on a certain sector. So, you know, when looking at flows and ETFs and just thinking, oh, that's dumb money that's just going into passively managed funds, I don't think that's the appropriate lens to be looking at flows with because of the tactical nature with which ETFs are used. How do you handle incoming investing questions from friends and family, knowing you're in the industry? And are they ever reaching out to you for some quick stock tips or anything like that? How do you handle that? It's tough because you want to, you, they know it's your career and they know it's your job and they know you've been successful in that career and job and they expect to hear some good advice. It's so complicated, Mike, as you know, to give advice on someone's investments when you don't really know what their whole picture looks like. But like for my brother, for example, who's 30 years old and has the whole world in front of him, single, living in Boston, I say, you should own equities. You don't need a balanced portfolio right now. You should own equities because of his time horizon and because of his you know his current situation. So as you know, it's complicated to give investment advice to people, especially family members. But you know, I think just keeping your perspective on where you are in your career and where you are in your life 
and family is important. And that's kind of what I usually lean on in those conversations. And for the record, that was not investment advice to anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I can't be sharing today. So going back to the education component and all of the work you put into staying on top of it, we've had a, a lot of conversations. I know the pulse you keep on the industry. Are there any resources you have or any favorite resources you're reading or listening to or watching that sort of keep you up to date on everything? Yeah. So our industry is really bifurcated, especially now with everything that's been going on. You have the one camp, which is more mainstream, always somewhat bullish, always are finding a silver lining in the data and where the market's heading. And, and then you have other camps that are expecting the worst. I like to read both. I think it's important to seek out other opinions and other views, not just in our industry, Mike, but just in general. So I read the Felder report from Jesse Felder. He does a really good job of, he's kind of on that other end of the spectrum of doom and gloom and we're heading to hell in a handbasket, but is very well thought, very data driven and makes a lot of sense. And then I also read a lot of the publications you read from major investment banks that you know are finding a silver lining. So I tend to balance it and then come up with my own kind of idea of what's happening in the market and where we are and then tailoring that to my clients and to our products. So I do my best to take a balanced approach. And I think that's healthy, not just in our industry again, but in life in general. What about disconnecting? I mean, I know you're a pretty big fan of traveling, you and your entire family. When you're traveling, are you still staying connected or are you trying to disconnect? That's tough. You know, I, I do have such a passion for the equity and capital markets in general that you know, part of who I am, I need to kind of stay involved or else I, I don't feel like myself. That sounds weird or inappropriate, but like I like to always kind of be involved with what's happening or else I feel a bit naked. So unfortunately, yeah, I, I do keep up with things, not as much as I would if I were home and working and not on vacation, but I do. I think it just keeps me a little bit more sane and keeps my perspective on things a little bit more normal. But I, like you said, I love to travel and I use that travel time as you know an opportunity to unplug a little bit. But I love interacting with people in those locations and getting their perspective on things. I think that's a really important part of your development as a person and a professional is through traveling, take it as an opportunity to maybe enhance your professional acumen of what's happening in these other areas. Are the problems that we face here in the Bay Area the same as they people face in Melbourne or New Zealand or Japan? Like Just trying to get a sense as to what people are dealing with, you know, I think can help you professionally as well in terms of the way you view your clients and you view the challenges that you face personally. I never really unplugged from my professional career because I always feel like Everything I do is moving the ball forward in terms of my own, you know, growing my own sense of who I am and I guess, I guess personal worth or personal equity as you entitled your, you didn't pay me to drop that line, did you? Um, entitled this podcast, but I think everything I do is building on that personal equity and to fully unplug, I don't think is from my point of view is worth doing. That was very well said, and it does make sense, obviously, how it helps you personally, but even in your specific career where your job is to interact and converse and teach and have discussions with people of all walks of life and all viewpoints. So it, it only helps you professionally to understand the bear case and the bull case or this view or that view. And if you're not being exposed to any of it, then you're not fully prepared for your meetings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the big things I like to focus on is getting out of my comfort zone. I think if you don't get out of comfort zone, you start to lose your edge. And just from my own experience, I grew up in the Boston area. I left Boston to go to school in Tennessee, not knowing a soul. Spent four years in Tennessee, went back to Boston, mainly because of a girl who's not my wife, and then moved out to California with no built-in client base, with no real sense of what it was like to live in the Bay Area. But I did it. And I don't know if it's because I can't stay in one place, but there's something about me that gets a little bit of a rush off putting myself outside of my comfort zone and seeing that edge come out and seeing myself kind of turning into a next gear. 
I think it's so important to do if you want to build on what you've already created. So part of the reason I moved out here was because of that. And part of the reason I love my job, and like you mentioned, meeting new people and building new relationships and putting yourself in awkward positions a lot of the time, I dig that. I think that's what makes you a better person. That's what makes you more well-rounded is just putting yourself in those awkward positions out of your comfort zone. I think the other key aspect of that though, Mike, is when you put yourself out of that comfort zone, you can't just do it blindly. There has to be some sort of preparedness involved. So you can't just walk outside of your comfort zone and expect things all to work. And I think if you're prepared, the trajectory at which you can move your personal life or your career can be exponentially higher if you're prepared to enter outside your comfort zone. Because preparedness at the end of the day builds confidence. And then that confidence is viewed as authentic. And I think that's what people love. So if you're out of your comfort zone, you're confident and authentic, you're going to succeed. So being prepared to leave that comfort zone is crucial to be successful. You hit on something that I've actually been thinking quite a bit about lately is, you know, I'm more conservative by nature, not politically, just in life, you know, accounting background, finance. I've been thinking about planning versus action. And how a lot of times sort of not acting or not pushing your comfort zone and planning, you're only sort of viewing maybe the linear results or the linear outcome. Or if I do this, then this would or could be the result. But with action or pushing the boundaries, there is that opportunity for exponential growth or even serendipity, right? You don't know what's going to happen. You don't really know what's on the other side. It could lead to growth or opportunities or a number of things. So I'm a fan of what you just said. I've been sort of pondering that lately. I'm an optimist, Mike. So (laughs) I expect things to work out. And I know they haven't always worked out, but I do have faith in things working out. If you keep a good head on your shoulders and you're doing the right things, that eventually things will line up appropriately for you. So maybe that's what's driving this is that I'm an optimist, but I certainly think it's important. And then, of course, too, you got to be patient, Mike, right? So you can't expect things to happen immediately when you leave that comfort zone. You have to let it take form, especially with relationships. In our business, it's a relationship game. Yeah, I think that one of the blows and hurdles that I had to get over when I moved out to California and started my business out here was trying to set appropriate expectations for myself and realize that relationships aren't going to be built overnight and don't happen as quickly as you might want them or need them to. And then finding that level of professional persistence to build those relationships in the right way. Patience is important. And that was something I struggled with when I moved out to California and tried to grow my business out here was being patient with it all taking shape. And now, you know, almost eight years later, here we are. And I still feel like I got a lot of wood to chop. Still, it's an interesting perspective. So if you're a financial advisor listening to this, one question I've always had is how can they or how can we or how can I better utilize you? It's the value I can bring to an advisor outside of the investment stuff, right? It's what are you seeing the best, fastest growing, most innovative, forward thinking advisors doing that I'm not? And how can I improve on my current business model? This is the question I'd be asking me because I have a unique perspective on hundreds, if not a thousand RIAs and individual financial advisors here in my territory. So without breaking confidence, I could certainly speak to what I see out there that's being well executed on, that's helping drive efficiencies, that's making their lives easier, making their clients' lives easier. So almost utilizing me as a sounding board and a resource for what are other financial advisors doing that I'm not, that I should be thinking about. I don't get that question as much as you would think, Mike. It's obviously more of like, you know, what State Street's market outlook or what's new in the ETF world? Very generic, boring questions <laughs> rather than what are the holes in my practice? What can I be focusing on to help grow my business that other firms are doing that you think is different and unique and effective? And I'd be happy to share those features that I think other firms have that are helping their success. Of course, without breaking confidence, but That's a really interesting role that I can play for financial advisors. So I now have a good topic for our next lunch together, which in case you forgot, is on me because we did bet lunch on the Canucks Canucks Bruins game months ago. So 
Uh, I hope we get it back soon, Mike. Dying without any hockey on TV. I've been watching like those old Stanley Cup playoff games from like the nineties. They had the they had the uh, Panthers, was it Panthers Rangers. I think uh, Panthers and um, no Av- Av- Avalanche. Yeah, it was Panthers. Yeah. The Beezer. They threw the rats on the ice when they scored. <laughs> that was my first memory of being a hockey fan since I was living in South Florida and the Florida Panthers were making a run. I was a fair weather fan. I was uh, lasted about four games, which is how long they lasted in the Stanley Cup. I was going to say the Florida Panthers will take any fans, fair weather or not, especially these days. So I know about your hockey fandom and hockey background, but when it comes to Boston sports, if you could pick one team that you could watch for the rest of your life or one team to win the championship is it the bruins or do you have a other fanhood there we've been so spoiled like you know like between all four major sports teams the the amount of success that they've spewed over the last 20 years is it's just kind of disgusting um but if i had to pick a team to see i think the you know boston is still a hockey town you go to a bruins game and you don't have the corporate white collar influence there as much as you do of course in the other places with with Fenway and of course Gillette Stadium so there's a different level of buzz in the city when the Bruins are making a cup run in June in Boston the weather's turning there's still hockey on and the bars in Faneuil Hall are are packed it's a different buzz of course the Red Sox you know, once they broke the curse in 04 and then won it again in a way I think the novelty of them winning was a bit dusted so you know i think it would be great to see the bruins win another one they had a chance against the blackhawks to was it to repeat or win two at a, you know two in three years they lost to the blackhawks who had a loaded team but yeah i think it would be to see the bruins win a cup so i know you can't make any investment predictions on this interview but do you have any return to hockey predictions are we going to see nhl return to play in the July, August, or is it not going to happen? I think they need to find a place to play first, right, Mike? As it stands today, yeah, there are a handful of cities that are in the running. How does that process work? No idea. So I'm staying on Boston here for a second. What's your favorite Boston-based movie? The Departed. As cliche as that sounds, the more I watch it, actually, it's pretty funny. It's actually a really funny movie. The last time I watched it, I was belly laughing. I don't know why. Just I find the the accents and some of that sarcastic Boston humor just maybe because I don't live there anymore. Very funny, but yeah, I think that that's so good. Mystic River is a good one. It's pretty authentic. So I'd say The Departed and Mystic River as a close second. Well, I'd be interested in any feedback from somebody that listens to this with your Boston accent and you mentioning Departed. I'm curious to hear any thoughts from the listeners there. Jumping back to hockey. Hockey is, it's a major sport in the U.S., but it's not the major, major sport. It's a little niche but it's surprising to learn how many active adult leagues there are around the country. Over the years, I've come across people here and there that do participate, and I never knew they existed. And I know you still strap on the skates every now and then. Is that right? Yeah, I do. There's a men's league here in San Francisco. A friend of a friend put me on the roster and I played for them for about four years, five years. And now I, I just skate in this Sunday. Well, the rinks aren't open anymore, but uh, every other Sunday skate with a bunch of guys, mostly former D1, D3 players. Some guys played pro. So yeah, no, it's for the Bay Area. I'd say when it comes to hockey in major cities, it's not very popular. I remember walking by the bars when the Sharks were in the cup finals a couple of years ago, and there was nobody in there with Sharks gear on. And I don't even think the game was on TV. It's definitely not a popular sport up here, but like you said, there's still men's leagues. I think you got a lot of East Coast influence in the area, especially these days. But yeah, still strap them on. It's a nice escape. It's a good weekly thing to look forward to and get a good sweat in. It's a great way to start your Sunday. Sundays at 9.30, it's like primo time. You know, get back to the city before lunch and spend the rest of your afternoon with your family. So it works. So are you using hockey to stay in shape or are you getting in shape to play hockey? Yeah, <laughs> neither. Hockey is more of an escape and activity for me. It's definitely not a part of my workout or cardio. I definitely am sucking wind out there, but I wouldn't say I rely on it to stay in shape. I was doing boxing 
three days a week. That was kind of a newfound hobby for me and newfound activity for me within the last couple of years. 6 a.m. boxing class, really kind of just bare bones. I'd meet this guy in the tennis courts over in the marina here in San Francisco and would just pound the mitts for an hour from six to seven, three days a week. It was an awesome routine. Great way to start your day. It was he would always say, this is the best mental health you've ever paid for. And, and he was spot on because you know, I'd come away from those sessions just so refreshed, so clear headed, obviously dripping and work to the bone. But I miss that. We haven't been able to do it. The tennis courts have been closed here for three months now. And then with having a baby one-year-old at home, it's just tough to work around that schedule. So I haven't been able to do the boxing. I've been doing some light shadow boxing in my backyard when I'm up for it. But that was a great routine and a great workout regimen that I would love to get back to here shortly. Boxing would keep me in shape for hockey rather than the opposite. So thinking about investments in yourself, both personally and in your career, you've mentioned a few things as far as education and staying up with everything, but even personally, travel, boxing, hockey. Is there sort of anything else in those boxes that we're missing that you'd like to highlight? Like I said earlier, I think it's always to get different perspectives on things. I try to listen to a lot of podcasts and read new books and not necessarily always finance books, but relationship books. So for example, I always kind of keep this book by me or I've always had it on my desk or near my bed just as a resource. It's, It's called Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi. The title, I think, says it all. And I kind of live by those words to some extent where, you know, if you just think about every meal that you have, now you really can't do it as much, but every meal that you have or every opportunity that you have to potentially be with someone and share a meal or share a cup of coffee, you should, both professionally and personally. And I don't want to say I live by those words, but it definitely always kind of stay there and linger in my thought process. You know, there's an opportunity to go out to have a beer with somebody or to have lunch with somebody or breakfast or coffee, you should take it. So that's a book that I kind of always come back to and and refresh with. It's definitely helped me through the last couple months here as we've been on lockdown. I, I think another interesting, I guess, use of my time that's helped me personally and professionally, and it's very recent, is through this shelter in place the last few months is not being afraid to reach out to people that you've always admired in terms of their work or writing and asking for some time. I've had a lot of success recently reaching out to people that, you know, in other circumstances, if we weren't all locked in our homes with not much to do, would probably have never gotten back to me, decided to write me back and say, yeah, sure, I've got 15 minutes. Be happy to chat with you, Chris. Or yeah, I'd be happy to speak to one of your clients. Just let me know. So I think this current world we're in almost allows us an opportunity. It's like everybody's got 30 minutes to kill. Right? Everybody's looking for ways to fill their day. And I kind of took that approach and like, all right, well, everybody else puts their pants on the same way and is dealing with the same problems. So why can't I reach out to this person who I've always would love to grab a coffee with or have a conversation with? And what's the worst that could happen? And my intuition was right. They got back to me and they were willing to speak. So, you know, that's something I've been doing recently to help myself professionally is reaching out to those people that I've always followed their work or respected and trying to network with them and get to know them and get to know their thought process. So I feel like that was something recently that I've been doing that. Yeah, I think that's great advice. That's gold and that's actionable. It would be even more gold if someone heard this in early days of lockdown. But at this point, again, late June, doesn't look like things will be changing too quickly anytime soon. So that's a uh, great advice. Related to that, you know, I'm interested in what a typical day looks like for you. And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine there's a lot more travel pre-March. So as far as getting in front of people now or having meetings or like you mentioned, never eating alone. How has that changed sort of pre-COVID, post-COVID? It's been tough, obviously, right? When you're so wired and you've trained yourself for years to stay busy and you know, that's all you know, to then be sequestered to your living room for three months, it's been very challenging. So I don't think there's a real perfect answer for this. Like I said earlier, 
it's reaching out to folks that you otherwise wouldn't feel comfortable or getting out of your comfort zone, reaching out to those people that you don't think would reply to you in normal times and just staying busy that way, clients or people of interest that you'd love to get a chance to know. So, you know, these times have opened up windows. I think it's an interesting way to look at these times is that it's an opportunity. I think when things are stressed and when there's a lot of uncertainty out there, there happens to also be a lot of opportunity for the folks that keep a level head and try to take advantage of it. So I've tried my best to view this as an opportunity. You know, it's worked to some extent, but it's, yeah, it's staying busy is not easy when you can't be busy. (laughs) So still dealing with it, but it seems like it's getting better. Yeah, it definitely comes through. I mean, you mentioned you're an optimist, but it's coming through in some of your answers and just outlooks you have. Sort of a two-part question, somewhat related to looking back on your journey over the last 10 years with State Street. A, were there any specific low points or hurdles that you encountered and somewhat related? Are there any specific people or mentors that maybe helped you along the way? Yeah, well, I hinted at it earlier when I first moved out here. At the time I was single, I was 24, 25. Again, not knowing the area, not knowing who my clients were going to be. I just moved in with my girlfriend in Boston. So we'd just moved into the back bay. It was kind of the ideal place, the place we'd always wanted to move in together with. And then a month later, I was shipping out to San Francisco and being there and, you know, with all these things looming over my head, I was basically sleeping on my floor on a sleeping bag that my buddy had given me, surrounded by boxes that I hadn't unpacked yet, like actual packing boxes, moving boxes, as well as empty boxes of like Chinese food because I was just so busy during the day and I didn't have time to make myself. I actually didn't have any, even have pots and pans, so I couldn't make myself dinner. My living room was a lawn chair. Actually, if you know the area, Mike, you know Perry's on Union Street here in Cal Hollow? I don't. I'm terrible. They have, a, they have a nightly special. It could be Wednesday night, but it'll have a Friday night special on the menu. So you can look forward to Friday night if that's what you wanted. One week, I had the special every night of the week to determine i was just that like bored and just had nothing to do and just alone that i i did the special roulette and the meatloaf one actually that was friday night but yeah so that was pretty low i mean that was i felt alone i felt lost i was having fun i was out of my comfort zone having fun but reality would hit me sometimes and be like what am i doing and then of course i get a car because i need a car to go travel to see clients i wanted a four-wheel drive car so i could go up to tahoe Right, like I go once a year, so <laughs> I gotta have four wheel drive. And I take it in, I so I bought the car, I was all excited about it, and I took it in for like its three month oil change and I drop it off, come back, get it. And the woman who was in charge of my inspection asked me if I'd put anything on the car. And I'm like, What do you well I've got my like parking pass for my neighborhood. She goes, No, no, did you put like a medallion or anything on your car? I said, No. So you sure you didn't put a four motion medallion on your car? And right then and there, I knew like, yeah, so you have this four motion badge on your car again, because I thought I had a four wheel drive car, but uh, your car is not four wheel drive. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I end up, yeah, I kind of blew it. My my boss came out and I blew a gasket and just went off and went down the path of like potentially taking these guys to court, realized that it just wasn't worth my time or energy or money. And they actually ended up giving me a brand new four-wheel drive car. I grinded them down without any legal matters involved. But yeah, so all this kind of happened <laughs> along with trying to build a career and build a new job and build a brand really in this new market. So that was tough. But it's funny, you go through those period, you look back on them like we're talking about right now and you're like, how the heck did I get through that? And again, I think it goes back to the optimist in me. I'm like, you know, things are going to work out. Just keep your head down. You're obviously going to be bumps along the road. But if you let them get to you, you're going to have even bigger bumps. You know, I kept my head down and I did the best I could with what I was given and made sure that when I was meeting with clients, I was making it as impactful as possible. And there was never a bad meeting. It didn't matter if I was meeting with a big shot advisor or some guy who was just starting off. It didn't matter. It was an opportunity for me to work on my skills, to build relationships, and I would never waste that opportunity. And that was kind of my mindset. And I think it was really valuable to have that mindset in terms of 
having a purpose with everything I did and not taking anything for granted. I think that got me in a good position and it helped build confidence. And it put me in positions, you know, I'd take a meeting with somebody and next thing you know, they would introduce me to somebody else. And then they would introduce me to somebody else that I otherwise wouldn't be able to get a meeting with. So the point is, you just got to stay focused on it. There's going to be issues. There's going to be low points, especially when you move to a foreign city and don't know anybody and don't have a bed, but you fight through it and you look back and you laugh about it and realize and be proud of what you accomplished. So you kind of just find a way to get through it. That's great. So I'd love to move into our final questions here. I know we're running up on time. You mentioned the book, Never Eat Alone. And so you're a fan of some podcasts. Is there any other current interesting content that you are consuming? It does not have to be work-related in any uh, shows, movies, books. Oh, if you want a show that will totally get your mind off anything, is River Monsters. You ever watch River Monsters on Animal Planet? Never. Jeremy Wade. All right, so I love traveling, as you know. He goes to all these exotic places around the world. It's an old show. It's been on air. I don't know if they make me up. Actually, there's a new... Jeremy Wade has a new show called Dark Waters, I believe, but not River Monsters. So anyway, I love that show. It's a phenomenal way. He goes to these really remote places and looks for fish in these murky backwaters of Mongolia. And they've got these crazy titles like the Mongolia Mutilator, or uh, they've got these ridiculous titles. And he's got this British accent. It's so smooth and usually doze off a couple times during the episodes. If anybody's looking for just a show to escape and watch some British dude catch monster fish, River Monsters is a huge recommendation for me. Uh, What else? Podcast-wise, I love the Axios stuff. I love how they call it smart brevity. That's a really cool term. It used to be called Pro Rata. I think they just changed the name Axios with uh, Dan Permac. That's something I listen to every morning. Not necessarily work-related, but it's definitely like economy, technology, politics. Uh, that's really good. Those would be my two recommendations, River Monsters and Axios. All right. So if you had your own podcast and you could interview anybody, past or present, for one hour, who would it be and why? Going back to my Boston sports roots, someone who's always fascinated me, Mike, is Ted Williams. All right. So he's the last professional baseball player to, to bat over 400 during the regular season. It's crazy to think that's it hasn't been done since I think it was the fifties. Took a three year hiatus and went and served in the armed fort in the Navy and the Marine Corps. It was just such a gifted talent and experienced so much. I saw that he'd only so he was frozen, right? Like he wanted to be cremated and his son instead froze him. And I was reading through like the legal battle that his son and his daughter had. She didn't want him to be frozen, but he only gifted them six or her $675,000. I mean, they weren't making anything in those times. So there was no ego involved. Like these guys were doing it because they love the game. He wouldn't serve in the military. And I think what's fascinating about this guy too is that year he batted 406. He was actually batting 400 with two games left. So he was batting three, I think it was like 399.5. They would have given him 400 with a double header left. Joe Cronin was their manager. He was rumored to have said that he gave Ted Williams the, the opportunity to just sit those games out just to preserve the 400 batting average, but he refused. He goes, it's either going to happen or it's not. You know, I'm going to play these last two games. And we'll see what happens. And of course, you know, at this point in the season, they're playing the Phillies. They didn't have their normal pitchers and they were giving guys a shot that Williams had never faced before. So pitchers had a slight advantage over this. And and why risk it? I guess if you're Ted Williams, but he insisted on playing. And guess what? He went six for eight over the course of that doubleheader and finished at 406. I would love to get through that thought process. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? He believed in himself. He had confidence. But like, that's a guy who I would love to pick the brain of, and, and I'm sure he's got stories for days. So, fortunately, he's not with us, but someone who I think would be a really interesting person to sit down and chat with. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that story up. I had forgotten about that, that 400 story, but it's such a great story, and it makes you wonder if we would ever have ever heard about that if it didn't work out that day. Right, right. And nowadays, with the option, you know, I think a player would probably sit out that doubleheader. It's just kind of the times we're in, and the way professional sports have grown so much. You hope that wouldn't happen, but you know, like I said, like guys like Ted Williams, stuff like that, stories like that don't happen anymore. 
So if someone's listening to this, anybody or maybe a financial advisor, and they want to get in touch with you, whether online or email, what's the best place or best method to get in touch with you? Yeah, I don't have a personal website or anything, but I guess LinkedIn would be a great place to find me. There's a lot of Chris Murphys out there, but I'm the one in San Francisco with State Street and Spider ETF. So that'd probably be the best place to find me. It's been awesome having you, Chris. I'm not sure if you have any parting thoughts for our listeners. No, no. I would just say um, I don't consider myself successful yet or, or at a stage in my life where I'm content and happy with what I've done. But you know, I think a lot of the success, I actually never answered your question about who's helped me get to where I am today. But you know, it's been the faith that others have put in me. And I've never kind of overlooked that. So I would say any opportunity that I have to help somebody else out or progress someone's career or answer somebody's questions or give insight on anything for someone who's looking for some guidance, I do it because I know that people did that for me. And that's the reason why I'm in the position I am today and you know, live the life I'm currently living. So I would just say if you know, there's ever an opportunity to help somebody out or one guidance, you should do it. It'll go a lot further than you think. That's great, Chris. Again, it's been great chatting with you. I appreciate you sharing your story and insights, not just into State Street and the ETF business, but your personal life as well. So much appreciated and thank you so much. Got it, Mike. Hopefully we do lunch soon. Thanks again for listening to today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. All of the show notes and links can be found at personalequitypodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to share it with a friend or leave a review. Reviews help the show get noticed. The best places to leave a rating or a review are iTunes or Spotify. Mike Troxell owns Modern Financial Planning. All opinions expressed by Mike or guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Modern Financial Planning. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions.